Do you remember Evil Knievel? Or maybe just know the name by reputation? Evil was a daredevil stunt rider back in the late 60s and into the 70s motorcycle. He did these incredible one-of-a-kind motorcycle jumps. And back in the day, there was nothing like it. No one was doing anything close to what he was doing. His most famous was at Caesar's Palace, the casino. 141 feet. He would run up a homemade ramp and then 141 feet going over the fountains in front of Caesar's Palace. And then he was supposed to land on a ramp on the other side to go down. He didn't make it. He crashed. He broke a bunch of bones. He ended up in the hospital. Luckily, he lived. The whole hospital thing turned out to be an amazing PR event for him that made him incredibly well-known. That was a difficult jump that, as I said, had never been done before. And when you look at it from the outside, you would assume, you would expect that there is some serious engineering going on in the background. But there wasn't. There were no engineers. There were no scientists saying, set the ramp at this angle, get to this speed, the ramp should be this long, the bike should weigh this. Nope. Evil Knievel was shooting from the hip. He just came up with an idea and then went for it, went the way that he thought it should go. And he may have broken 35 or more bones, depends on who you ask, and up to 433 fractures. 433? But it kind of worked for him. I mean, here we are, five decades later, still talking about him. Israel Gillette, who we have on today, considers himself a motorcycle maniac. Now, he doesn't say anything about Evil Knievel, but I think Israel Gillette, and again, this is me, he didn't mention anything about this at all, but I think he has more in common with Evil Knievel than he does with the average motorcycle overlander. You'll hear what I mean. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Manikin. Simon Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Graham Jarvis. Chris Birch. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. All right. Uh, well, my name's uh, Israel Eugene Gillette. Uh, I, I was born and raised in Johnson City, Jonesboro, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I cause as much grief as possible. At the moment, I'm working as a carpenter. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Glad to be here. At the moment, you're working as a carpenter, so that sounds sort of fluid. You can change what you're doing. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the COVID response destroyed my import and export business, which was unfortunate for me because I didn't get any money out of it. And uh, in terms of like the stopping that, uh, I didn't get any relief. And I'd worked a long time to, to, to set that business in motion. and um, 
Yeah, but uh, in the process, just went back to working as a carpenter. But I grew up doing that, so I, I grew up in a wood shop. You're um, you probably consider yourself somewhat of a motorcycle enthusiast. <laughs> well, probably, probably a bit more than that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a, a, I'm a motorcycle maniac. Uh, just uh, and you know, it's kind of a. a a little ironic because my parents wouldn't let me have a motorcycle growing up, but I found out a way. I got my first motorcycle at, at 17 and that's a little late in life, but I've uh, been riding and racing and doing all kinds of motorcycle related things ever since. What was the fascination with motorcycles? They were fast uh, and, and cheaper than cars. I uh, probably had a little more natural ability uh, r- racing or driving cars and I did motorcycles, uh, but, uh, they were fast and they were cheap. So practical reasons, really? Well, I mean, practical, practical in my, uh, in my view. Yeah. But I mean, it's not like you saw the, at that time anyway, and I, I bet you it's changed now, but I mean, it's not like you saw the romance of the motorcycle. You're, you're looking for something that's fast and cheap. Fast. Oh, well, sure. Sure. And, and now I'm not saying that I haven't seen the romance since. Yeah, I am. I'm not being particularly eloquent here. It's just basically when I got into it, it was okay. These things are are really fast and they're cheap, and I I would like to. I I, I need one. <laughs> and you mentioned racing in there, so you're into racing. Yeah, well, uh, kind of big. Um, I have a pro racing license with Moto America. Uh, race the Daytona 200 and, uh, I'm trying to race on the Isle of Man, uh, uh, which is a story in itself. And it's, it's been a, it's been a bit of a slog, uh, to, to get it done. But I think this year I'll be in for the Manx Grand Prix, uh, which maybe listeners are more familiar with the TT, but the Manx Grand Prix is, uh, held on the same course as the Isle of Man TT. Uh, just with uh, say, and, and now they, it's more, it's not club racers so much anymore. The guys that are doing the Max Grand Prix are, you know, a lot of them are just as fast as the guys in the TT. So, um, it's, it's a really high level of competition and, uh, but hopefully this year I will finally, finally get in. And this, so, so the, the Grand Prix is just maybe slightly below the intensity of the TT, obviously. Yeah, sure. And overall, the, the pace is, is lower The you know, the, the money involved is lower, but, uh, the, this year, the guy who won, who, who uh, well, the front, the, the front two guys were newcomers, which I, I hope to be next year, mm-hmm. a newcomer. They did 120 mile an hour plus laps on 600 cc machinery or super sport machinery and that would have put them kind of mid-pack at the tt so Mm. it's not like these guys are slow so does that give you a like a a door into the tt if you if you win the grand prix well potentially but i i don't anticipate i don't anticipate going that fast Mm. uh now the what I'm shooting for, uh, and I race a Ducati. So, uh, uh, you guys out there, I know this is an adventure kind of thing and adventuring is what this is about. And, and I've done my share of that. Uh, but, uh, for the Isle of Man, I hope to be on my Ducati. I race a Ducati V2, uh, which is L twin. It's a, it's a newer one. 
But even on that fantastic machinery, I'm looking at like, if I do a 115 mile an hour lap, I'll be over the moon uh, kind of thing. So, uh, and, and to be real honest, anything over 110 miles an hour, I'll be happy with. Uh, but uh, I'm shooting for a 115 mile an hour lap. And, uh, um, and, and that, that's really fast. People get these uh, in relation to the Isle of Man. Uh, they have these oddball ideas about how fast it is. And, you know, Peter Hickman did 136 mile an hour lap on his, you know, factory supported BMW. And he's a British Superbike uh, winner, uh, did, did 136 miles an hour. So, like, they think, oh, well, like, you know, 120, 115 miles an hour, that's not fast. I'm like, you're insane. It is so fast. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said that um, that you grew up in, in uh, Jonesboro. Is that what you said? Jonesboro, Tennessee, oldest town in Tennessee. Right. And your dad had a, what, do you have a factory of some sort doing flooring? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a, a cabinet shop, uh, and I worked in the cabinet shop as a little kid uh, doing just menial tasks. I guess Dad uh, thought it was real important to make sure I was out there working as a kid. And, and maybe in hindsight, it, it was. Uh, and then we converted from cabinet manufacturing into to flooring. We manufactured hardwood flooring and custom moldings. So you, this is obviously where your roots for carpentry come in. I can understand why you fall yeah. back on that. While you were working there, you mentioned about, you know, your dad uh, you know, had you working and thought it was uh, maybe germane to a, a proper upbringing for a person yeah, to teach in the exactly. world. You didn't get along with your dad so well, though. No, uh, no. Dad, and dad, he'll probably listen to this interview, but I love my dad. Let me put it that way. So, mm -hmm. dad, I love you. Uh, anything I say here, please don't hold it against me, but I'm going to be somewhat honest about it. But that, 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 no, my dad and I, we, we didn't, we didn't really get along real well. Uh, now when I was real young, we got along just fine because I did everything you wanted. Mm. Uh, as I got older, uh, we didn't, we didn't really <laughs> get along that great. You know, it, it was an issue and. In teenage years, he went off to Eastern Europe after the, you know, kind of uh, fall of communism, and, uh, which was interesting, especially in hindsight. It, it was a real interesting thing. And uh, I, I kind of followed along in the footsteps, not just in carpentry, but kind of being an adventurer. And I like it, say, in Romania, where he, he went and, and, and started to farm. But it, it caused a, a bit of strife growing up. He, he, like, as, as far as your family situation, he left you guys there and, and went over? Or how, how did that work? Yeah, yeah, a bit. Yeah, he left to, to go to Romania, uh, you know, like, in 1990. I mean, like, he went to Romania the first time with the church group in 1990, and then he really loved the place and just kept going back. And, I, and again, I can understand why. I mean, uh, Eastern... Uh, Europe in, in the early 90s was a bit the wild, wild east, and you had a lot of freedom there. I mean, a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was my first international trip was uh, to Romania in, in the early 90s. And boy, as a, as a teenager, young teenager, 13-year-old in uh, Eastern Europe, it was, uh, yeah, I don't know how much at the time I realized how special it was, but in hindsight, I do. What do you uh, mean? It, it, like, 
you just you could just do whatever you wanted to. As the police in, had no, the police had no power. Uh, it was like there really weren't rules. <laughs> you could do whatever the hell you want or whatever you wanted. Well, that could so, be good and bad too, because that could also cause you problems. Somebody else doing something that they want to do. Well, sure, sure, but that never happened. Well, and and I won't say it never happened. It it did. It did. There was a little bit of you know, some people didn't like the fact that I was a you know privileged you know young American running around the the the, the streets of Dorahoy, uh, Romania, right, uh, and would give me a little bit of grief over it, but that didn't bother me. And it, it, like, uh, whatever. <laughs> so one of those things that you learn from, and uh, like, okay, not everybody likes you. Most people <laughs> like you, but not everybody likes you. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, you can understand that. I mean, you certainly see yeah. how that would happen. You, when yeah. your dad went though, I mean, this just seems so, it sounds so bizarre from the outset, you know, from not knowing, I guess, all the details and everything. But, but were you part of the reason he he went? I, well, I wasn't necessarily the lone reason he went. I may have been one of the reasons that he stayed. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 maybe, maybe to a certain degree. Uh, you know, things weren't going, I, you know, I missed the, in terms of expectations for me and how I'd progress in life and, and things, I, I missed the mark by <laughs> a, 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 a long way. And, you know, like, uh, and it, yeah, I wasn't good in school. Terrible, terrible. Not, not at university. I was fine. Eventually when I graduated, I, you know, did well. But uh, yeah, growing up, no, I was I was a, a, a terrible failure, and uh, he and I did not get along. And maybe it was you know, like he could see some progress in what he was doing there, and uh, he wasn't interested in the, the family business anymore. And you know, I, I I don't know. A lot of that's just conjecture. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I told I even told the story uh, uh, doing my storytelling stuff, uh, just talking about how that the reason dad was in Romania was because of me. And, and I, to maybe not at very first, uh, that, uh, but uh, him staying, I think, I think was, was, there's a lot of truth to that. So he stayed and you went back to Tennessee. Well, yeah, but I only barely went to Romania in the early nineties kind of thing. Oh, I see. Uh, so I, I was there in 93, uh, and spent the summer there. Um, but dad, yeah, he, he stayed and they changed rules to where Americans could buy property in the late nineties. And he, he bought some property, uh, to, to put a farm on and, uh, and there's a farm there now. And, uh, you know, our relationship has had its ups and downs. And at the moment, unfortunately we're in a trough, which I didn't see coming. Uh, but I'd, I'd spent a lot of time on the farm in Romania. I love it there. And that's where I want to be, to be honest. Uh, we'll see what happens. I, I, I don't know. I have no, uh, I had expectations and I've tried to, uh, to not have any now. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but, uh, he's on back on the farm for the first time in many years. And, but I've spent a lot of time there, uh, through the, uh, 2000 and teens uh, started to like back in 2009. I went back to the farm and he was there. And uh, I, I, I've been there a whole lot more since then than he has. But uh, at the moment, he and my mother are on the farm in Romania and I'm back in Tennessee. 
when you say the relationships in a bit of a trough, are you talking about something to do with a farm or are you talking about with your dad? Both. Oh, <laughs> both. <laughs> okay. Both. Uh, dad, dad, dad likes to hide things from me and he wouldn't admit to it, but he knows it's true. Uh, uh, so like dealings with farm though, I was the one there. He'd only tell me just enough. And this is similar to what he did with the, with the family business. Uh, he'd hide things from me. And I, I don't know why it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll let things be as they are. And I'll just trust that things are working out in their best interest. But it frustrates me because I kind of like fo- uh, focused on being on the farm and, and trying to make it go with that and, and continuing on with uh, uh, what he wanted and his ideas for the farm while managing to somehow make it, I wouldn't say profitable, but it sustained itself, uh, which he was kind of on board with and then all of a sudden wasn't. But uh, that's caused a certain amount of consternation of late. But I'm not, I'm trying to, to be uh, more understanding of whatever's going on, even if I don't have full understanding uh, of what's going on over what I had been when I was younger, which is just angry and, you know, like <laughs> volatile. <laughs> so in this case, I am trying to implement some, some better understanding uh, of things uh, over just, okay, well, I understand it, but I'm not doing anything about it. I'm trying to do things a little differently in relationship with my, my father. Mm, it's a work in progress. Well, it, it is, but we're running out of time. We need to, we need to, to make, <laughs> we need to make some big progress really quickly. Well, but as long case. as you're trying though, isn't that like such a positive thing? Just, just trying the, the, the act of trying. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's the most important thing. I don't know if it's going to work out or not. And my plans over the past years may uh, have to change due to it, but, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. I, I'm not. I, I don't know. It's a it's a bit of a quandary. This relationship and and my place in Romania on the farm. I I, I don't know. I don't know. Are you sitting outside right now? Yeah. Uh, and you got blue jays around? Actually, yeah, they're blue jays right. Fr- I'm looking at them right now. They're <laughs> tiny little blue jays. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Well, that's great. And I can hear the odd breeze there too. Yeah. Hey, it in June. 2011, you were on a break from university. You were out of jail on a $30,000 bond. Yeah. You left Tennessee. You headed south for the Texas-American border on a nine-year-old R1150GS with 75,000 miles on it with a goal of reaching Argentina. Well, where do you start with something like that? (laughs) I mean, Well, well, let's first start at the jail. The jail, 30,000. Why were you in jail? <laughs> what, what, what happened? You know, okay, so I'm going to give you a long-winded story here. We got a little bit of time. Well, stick around. You can tell a good story is coming up next. I have two things to tell you about. Stay with us. Coming up on um, 10 years ago now that I interviewed a rider that had ridden around the world on $25 a day. He'd spent four and a half years doing it. 
That rider was René Cormier. And even back then when I spoke with him, he was already taking people on adventures through his company, Renadian Adventures. Now, Renadian Adventures is 13 years old, and they're still taking riders all over the globe. Well, even more riders and more places now. Riding adventures largely selected from favorite places that Rene went on his round-the-world trip. These are places that feature sort of big landscapes and not many people. He runs with small groups, under 10 bikes, and he offers trips into Africa, Mongolia, South America, New Zealand, Scotland, and Canada. These are upscale, boutique-style accommodations, and they ride predominantly uh, BMW GS motorcycles. Almost 40% of the riders this year are repeat customers. That clearly speaks to Renadian Adventures' quality and consistency in doing a great job at what they do. Riders choose Renadian because of the passion that Rene has for what he does. It, I mean, that's the whole reason he went into this is because he couldn't let go of it after doing his, his four-and-a-half-year trip. He has long-term guides that have been with Renadian for years, including full-time staff in South Africa, Canada, and the U.S. Unforgettable adventures by day and recharge in ultimate comfort by night. Renadian.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. Renadian.com. The whole point of an adventure motorcycle is so that you can ride long distances to places that you can explore, maybe ride some challenging stuff, look at the scenery, most of all, adventure, right? But even on an adventure bike, those long distances can sometimes be a little much for your wrist, your arm, and your shoulder. Throttle hand, I mean. Holding your wrist locked in one position for hours on end or even even 20 minutes is sometimes fatiguing. But there is one device that is very popular with adventure riders, street riders too, for that matter, and that is the Atlas Throttle Lock. And the Atlas Throttle Lock will cure that problem. And, And it just changes the way you ride too. It really does. The Atlas Throttle Lock was invented by riders just like you and I. Uh, it was Heidi and David Winters on their round-the-world trip. That's when they came up with the idea. They're riding two up on a KTM. This device, the Atlas Throttle Lock, to begin with, is just a stunning piece of machinery. It is, it is so well-designed and manufactured. It really is. It's ultra-thin. It clamps on your handlebar in minutes. But I think what's going to impress you even more than in the way it looks is the way that it works. It has two buttons on it. And right in line with that sort of Apple quality design and manufacturing, these two buttons provide tactile feedback so that you never have to look down to see what you're doing. The feel tells all. One button for engage, the other for disengage. You simply press the button and your throttle position is held at that position. If you need more throttle, you roll more on or roll more off, it'll hold the new position. There's no need to disengage it to make adjustments. Then to disengage, you simply press the other button. It's utterly simple yet utterly fantastic in how it changes your ride. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Okay, so I'm going to give you a long-winded story here. We got a little bit of time. Sure. Uh, kind of early in the day for me. Got Blue Jays <laughs> out here squawking and uh, got, got my new puppy at my feet. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I guess 
I was a really good spot in my life. I was dating a surgeon. Uh, I had a great relationship going, and I've had I've had a problem with that. Uh, but it, I was it's just things were going too well, and I, I was driving through my hometown of Jonesboro, Tennessee, and I see some some Jonesboro police with a with a canine unit walking around an old, and I mean an old Honda Civic. It was like a late '70s model Honda, and this guy was clearly poor. And I'm like, you know. They're shaking this dude down. You know, he's standing outside his car and they've got the dog running around it. I, I, did, I wasn't having that. I, was like, I pulled over and I stopped. I'm like, why are you walking the dog around his car? And boy, they didn't like that. They did not like that. Not one bit. And they're like, get out of here. You get out of here. I'm like, okay, well, I'll leave. You tell me to leave. And, and you know, we're in a, 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 a gas station parking lot. I'm, like, I'm not sure that they can tell me to leave. They have, don't really have that authority. But uh, 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 I'm like, okay, I'll leave. But, you know, this is some some fascist crap. And, uh, and like, I don't like it one bit. So I go out and get in my sob and I'm starting to drive away. And one of the cops comes rushing across the parking lot and jumps in front of my car. And like, you get out of that car right now or I'll pull you out. So, you know, I stop and get out of the car and, and they're upset. You know, they're just upset. They, they're looking for something at that point to charge me with. And uh, this guy comes, and he was steroid-addled. Sergeant, sergeant. And I'm not making that up. guy's name <laughs> sergeant, sergeant. He was steroid-addled. Guy ended up going to federal prison for steroid trafficking, actually, uh, which it, it was ridiculous because he wrote up the uh, most terrible police report ever constructed for me. In which the 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 local the John City Press. Hey, John City Press. I hope somebody there is listening to this because you guys really really roughed me up good. And so they just like wrote it straight verbatim. What Sergeant Sergeant the 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 future uh, steroid trafficker at that time he was probably trafficking steroids wrote up. But Sergeant Sergeant got there and, and he said, "What's this I hear about you?" Uh, um, I'll reframe it because I can't remember exactly how the guy framed it. Mm-hmm. But Sergeant Sergeant came and he he's he you know got his his finger thrust in my face and he's like uh, 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 talking about like why are you here what are you doing and uh, trying to drive over my deputy or you know like the sheriff's officer or well he wasn't sheriff he was Jonesboro police and uh, he. Uh, I'm like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. They're walking the dog around the car. And he's like, that dog is an officer of the law. And I said, well, they were walking officer whiskers around the car. And he, he cut me off right then. He said, aggravated assault on a police officer. I'm like, I'm like you're full of S-H-I-T. And, and he said, he said, disorderly conduct. <laughs> and, and next thing you know, I'm going across the road. And, and the jail was literally across the road or is across the road. And yeah, the, the officer that, that had run over in front of my car, uh, he ended up feeling bad about that. Also got fired. <laughs> he didn't go to federal prison at least, but he got fired from the Jonesboro Police Department. And, uh, yeah, they t- he took me to jail and I'm like, well, tell me what my, my bond is. And he did, he never came back to tell me what my bond was cause it was $30,000. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that cost, and they put me on the front page of the paper 
And in the story, it said that I tried to run over the police officers in my sob. When they told me to leave and I was going the opposite direction and the guy ran over in front of me to stop me. So yeah, it was, it was bogus. And, and ultimately it ended up, uh, uh, I ended up being vindicated. It took a long time because they didn't want to let go of it. They wanted something, but right. yeah, the, uh, it was part somewhat the impetus or part of it, of me like, you know, this is ridiculous. And I did, I did, a couple of international trips. Uh, I, I rode across Europe was the first thing. And then I, after I built up my confidence uh, doing a, a trans-European motorcycle ride, I, I did the uh, uh, the uh, Pan American Highway, basically. And, uh, yeah, rode to Argentina and Chile. So th- you stopped really just to help somebody or you thought you were going to help them by maybe taking some of the heat off of them. <laughs> pun intended, but yeah. uh, that, no, that didn't work. You end up finding yourself in jail, and then you have to put up a thirty thousand dollar bond. Does, don't they tell you how you can't leave at that point? Well, they could, they could, and you know, I was in uh, it got because I I was fighting it, and I took it to criminal court, and and the judge in criminal court at the time, Robert Cup, he knew it was bogus. He knew it was bogus. Oh, yeah. He could read that. He knew it was bogus, but the DAs were holding on to it i had be like you know i had a little bit of criminal history but usually just similar stuff like i'm obstinate i wasn't i wasn't out stealing things from people i wasn't beating people up i i really like telling authority uh, authority folks where they could stick it you know <laughs> and, uh, and 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 you know the da's are kind of authority so uh yeah. Uh, and 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 I would do it. I'd go in court as a teenager, you know, and 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 tell them like, you know, you guys are out of out of hand. But uh, and so their memories, they they had long memories about that, and they they wanted to to give me grief over it. But uh, but the judge knew, and I remember being in court, and they like they were trying to reset my criminal court thing uh, for some time in you know maybe June or July. And I'm like, I can't be here, Your Honor. And I, at that point in time, I was going to school in Chattanooga, at University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And they're like, well, why can't you be there? I'm like, I'm gonna be in, uh, uh, I'm gonna be uh, in Bolivia. I'm like, you going to Bolivia? Uh, uh, like, yeah, I'm, I'm riding a motorcycle, in Bolivia. Or uh, uh, I said, I'll be on a motorcycle in Bolivia. He said, How are you getting your motorcycle there? And I looked around to the court. I'm like, Well, I'm gonna ride it there. And I remember one of the one of the DAs, the assistant DAs, just busted out laughing when I said I was going to ride it there. <laughs> but I did. And he didn't He didn't try to circumvent that in any way. He's like, okay. put it. He put it off for, for much later. He put it off for the, the fall. Oh, he accommodated so, it. Well. Yeah, yeah. Well, he knew it, he knew it was bogus. He knew the, he knew the charges were, were uh, you yeah, know, just completely overblown. So, right. <laughs> yeah, he let me do my thing. And, hey, Judge Cup. Thank you very much. It was the best thing I ever did with my life. So you had a little trouble with authority, probably still do. It makes me think about that thing we were talking about with your dad. Nah, forget it. Let's So this trip though, so you end up leaving court and, and did you do your trip? Did you ride down to Argentina? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not without some, some hangups, but yeah. And, and, and I had some help along the way. My, my buddy, when I, I'd have issues, I had a buddy, Ari, that helped me a little bit. And uh, uh, my cousin, uh, Jim Burkhart, the world's coolest nuclear engineer, 
uh, would would help me a little bit. But basically, uh, I, I left out and uh, yeah, crossed that border from uh, Brownsville, Texas, into Montemoros, Mexico, which is diabolical, by the way. If it, it, for you adventure riders out there, uh, you better have some belief in yourself making that border crossing. I suggest you take another one. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, it, it, it's really it's really sketchy. I mean that Montemore Brownsville to Montemoros, uh boy, that'll that'll set you straight, that one. Uh yeah, yeah, just just road, just road. And Mexico's a brilliant place. I, I'm not I'm not trying to uh, cast any bad light on, on Mexico at all. You just do it. You know, mm-hmm. people talk about it like no. Mexico's brilliant, lovely people, the best food in the world. Uh, uh go do it, but maybe don't take the the Brownsville Montemoris border crossing. <laughs> so what, that wasn't your first long motorcycle trip then? No. Uh, uh, the first one, I bought a, uh, a 1985 R80 uh, BMW and uh, off eBay UK and flew over and picked it up and, and rode to Romania. And uh, uh, so, and I still, you know, all these bikes that I've owned, I, 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 I sentimentality and stuff like that i've never kept one except for that one and i still have i still have that bike it, it's sitting at the farm in romania mm-hmm. under a tarpaulin why what's so but special yeah, about that i just i i don't know at the time i didn't have time to sell it <laughs> kind <laughs> of thing or couldn't figure out how to sell it and but it was my first transcontinental motorcycle trip and uh, yeah, I still got it, and I, and I probably won't sell it. I, that one's gonna that one's gonna stay with me, or stay in Romania if I go back. And uh, yeah, it, it it was nice, but you know, in hindsight, it was just that was kind of a precursor to that South American trip. Uh, just kind of giving me faith in myself, so like I can do this, and you know, mm-hmm. it's like I can make it happen. And I did it with very little money, and uh, yeah, just spending most of my money on fuel not eating and uh but uh yeah it, it was one of those things it's just a, a kind of a dry run for that south american trip the south american trip really uh was was the one that uh kind of made me who i am kind of thing the south american trip going down to argentina back in 2011 yeah. um, what uh, was it about that that trip that you say really made you who you are now well, just the adversity that I had to overcome during the trip. And I did it with, with very little money and, you know, for a trip like that. Uh, and it was just me, you know. I'm sorry, Daisy, that I left you home. Poor Daisy got left at home. Uh, but That's a dog. Uh, yeah, da- Daisy was my uh, Black Lab uh, Border Collie mix. I had her for 15 years. Uh, and she was the first uh, motorcycle dog that I had, but uh, I didn't have enough uh, faith in myself or faith in what well, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty going into it. And I left her home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of to cross. Do it, yeah, well, it is. And, uh, but if I, if I had it do over again, I would have taken Daisy with me. Uh, but, but yeah, at the time I was just, you know, it, it, there was like Facebook just getting started in 2009, you know, 2010 when I did the trip. Uh, but it was like, ah, 
I didn't have a lot of uh, info to, to fall back on. I had the Adventure Motorcycling Handbook or Adventures Motorcycling Handbook, uh, yellow one, uh, uh, which you guys probably. Chris Scott? Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I devoured that thing. <laughs> and I, I, and uh, my girlfriend at the time had bought it for me. And uh, she was a, a Spanish professor at UTC. And she bought me this this book. And man, I I, I read the read the covers off that thing. And uh it, it it was good. That's where I was getting all my info from. Now now things are such with the in social media that you get you get a lot. You go on Horizons Unlimited or some uh, adventure rider kind of stuff, and everybody'll have all the answers for you, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, at that point in time, didn't really have that kind of resource, you know, a little bit, you go on the, uh, 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 there's ADV rider, like a, a forum or something, Yeah. but just the info wasn't as prevalent then as it is now. So, uh, there was a lot of unknowns and you just had to go out there and do it. So, uh, but it was good. It was good. You, you, you gain a lot of confidence in yourself doing something like that. When you say adversity, you know, the, it's the adversity of the trip. Was it just the adversity of traveling by yourself, going through all these countries and, and making the trip on your own? Or are there specific things that happened there that, that you had to overcome um, that were really difficult? Oh, I, there were <laughs> all kinds of adversity. Well, an example. Just me. Just, just, okay. I, okay. So I went to jail in Mexico. That was my, that was my first time with problems with authorities on the trip was in, uh, uh Southern Mexico. Uh, I went to, what was it? which one did I go to the, some of these ruins, uh, down in Southern Mexico, Palenque. So I went to Palenque, uh, the mine ruins in Palenque and, uh, I got to Palenque and I was already kind of facing some issues because I'd ordered a new uh, ATM card, right? And now the ATM card, you go into the bank and they give you one there on site. Back then, it wasn't the case. You had to wait on it to get mail. So I got a new ATM card for this trip. And, all, you know, most all my money was in, in, in the bank and I couldn't had no access to it. I was waiting on the ATM card. Well, I got the ATM card. But I didn't have the code for it. They send you the code separately. Oh, right, separate envelope. Yeah. <laughs> so I had the card, and I'm I'm going down. You know, I'm going through Mexico, but I just had a little bit of money to get me by. And you know, I get I get to Plinka, and I'm running out of money. I mean, like basically have no money left, and I don't want to cross the border. You know, out of Mexico into to Guatemala till I have uh, this code. So. I found a defunct Volvo uh, dealer, and uh, the gate was open. It was torrentially, the, the rain was torrential. I mean, it was coming down. So I went to this defunct, uh, out-of-business Volvo dealer, and I go back in the oil change bay and set up a tent next to my BMW. And I end up living in, in this uh, old Volvo dealership for like a week and uh, waiting on this code to come so I could access the money in my account. So while I'm there, I try, you know, I'm like, well, hell, I got, they, they got the biggest ruins in, in mine ruins here. I need to go see that. And, uh, so I go there and of course I've got all my 
all my valuable stuff and, you know, walking around ruins with a big bag of stuff, it isn't desirable at all. So I was trying to uh, uh, get them put somewhere safe. And, and the lady at the front selling the tickets like, oh, it'll cost you this much. I'm like, well, I don't have that. I just have enough money to get into the place. And, and she put her hands up like, eh, I'm not, I can't, I'm not going to help you. So I'm like, well, I saw a gate open. And, and some, you know, it, it, you know, like uh, some university guys uh, like going in, uh, archaeologists or whatever. I'm like, hey, the gate's open. And uh, I got on my motorcycle and I drove into the ruins and drove around. And, boy, those uh, uh, those university guys did not like that at all. And uh, so I got in there and parked next to one of their cars and, and next to the ruins and Ah, oh, they called the police. They made a whole big deal of it, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they put me in jail over that. It, it was fun too, though. When when cops got there, they they kind of like tried to figure out who was going to ride my R eleven fifty GS back to to, to the Plinke lockup in the center of town, and uh, it, it, the one guy got to be the dude that got to ride the bike. <laughs> So, and he was real excited about it, but he was not a very big guy. And it was my stuff. It was my bike was fully loaded. You know, yeah. it, it was, it was, it, it wasn't for the, the faint of heart. Uh, like you didn't know what you're doing. And uh, it just from the sheer weight of it. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, I got to ride in air conditioned comfort in the, the back of a pickup truck back to the Plinke lockup and watch my bike get ridden back as well and and they pull into this uh, uh kind of open uh air sort of jail kind of thing it had like a courtyard in the center you know and it was in the center of town and and i go we we pull in and there's this poor unfortunate soul with his wrist <laughs> laying out of one of the lockups it was open air lockup and, and i'm like oh my god are they gonna put me in there and, uh, but they didn't, <laughs> they, they, they put me out with the prostitutes in the courtyard and, and, and there were these prostitutes and I don't know, uh, it's a little spicy here, but I don't know if they did it intentionally, but, and I'm pretty sure they did, but they had these prostitutes like locked up to a table at another level in the courtyard. So the, the prostitutes were sitting up like another four feet higher than you or two and a half, three feet higher than you and, and they had just me just sitting there and I and I wasn't I wasn't handcuffed like they were they were handcuffed to this table but I was just sitting on a on a uh, uh, you know just a regular old chair in the middle of this courtyard looking straight over towards these prostitutes who were linked up and they were in their cocktail dresses and you like you're sitting that way looking in their direction and it had to have been done on purpose it had to have been done on purpose that's weird no it it was completely weird but every every cop in town came by and my bike was parked right there next to me in this courtyard with prostitutes straight in my line of vision ahead of me and every cop in town came by to, to check out the bike and talk to me even though they weren't speaking any English, you know, like, and they, they kept uh, talking about how terrible their Yamahas were. Uh, like, they didn't like the Yamaha. They liked the BMW. Oh, really? BMW. So what, what did they, what did they do with you? They're, they're keeping you for what? Well, it, it was something like, it, it was basically the, the, the Mexican equivalent of trespassing. 
you know, and, and it wasn't like a, it was something you could pay a fine, right? But they didn't know what the fine was. The magistrate had to get there to set the fine for me. Uh, so they set the fine. Finally, the magistrate came and they set a fine, but I didn't have that many pesos. It, it was, it was something menial. It was like the equivalent of like 30 bucks or something, right? But I didn't have that many pesos. I was waiting on the uh, uh, ATM code. But the guy, the magistrate, he was a fancy dude. Probably didn't want to be dealing with this on a weekend kind of thing. But he came and he walked me. He let me use his, uh, 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 he had Blackberry. So he's like, he was real fancy mm-hmm. at the time. He had, had a smartphone. And uh, so he let me use his BlackBerry, check my email, and my brother had gotten the piece of mail, and because che- he was on the lookout for it, and he'd uh, forwarded me the uh, ATM code, and the magistrate walked me around out of the lockup to, to the square there in Plinker, and uh, I, I I was able to withdraw the, the however many pesos, roughly fifty or thirty thirty bucks to to pay them, and and I got released. Mm-hmm. Well, $30, that's a substantial fine for, for them. Oh, especially in Southern Mexico. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's very poor down there. What, what, what other kind of things really made the trip? Uh, you know, I had to replace a clutch in uh, San Jose, uh, Costa Rica. And there are BMW shops all throughout Latin America and all over the world. Every country's got at least one other than Argentina, I think. Uh, uh, Argentina has a knack for causing problems with, you know, freedom in general. Uh, <laughs> so BMW isn't having a, a shop in Argentina anymore. Mm-hmm. At least they didn't at that time. But, uh, uh, yeah, in San Jose, I had to replace a clutch and on a BMW GS. That's a, the big deal. So that cost me some time in San Jose. Uh, then, you know, just crossing the Daring Gap, it, it causes its own uh, set of problems. I'd intend on being on a, a, a boat and floating over, but the time spent in San Jose getting the clutch replaced necessitated that I fly it. And, and you know, they said it was going to take this long, X, X number of days, and it ended up taking like a week and a half or two weeks or something. And I was stuck in, in Bogota, you know, twiddling my thumbs for two weeks, <laughs> wondering mm-hmm. how I was going to, how I was going to make it, uh, you know, and yeah. And then at the end of the trip, the first part of the trip, at least, uh, crossing from Bolivia and Argentina ended up being a complete nightmare. And I just had to get, uh, uh proactive about it and got shot at those guys. <laughs> I was, I was in, I, I was in there legally. I mean, I had the stamp in the passport, but they wouldn't let the bike in. And uh, they insisted on having, I don't know how many different insurances I had on the bike by that time, because every country would sell you their own. Right. And I had insurance here in the States. Uh, but it, it, like, you guys have insurance. I'm like, well, sell me some insurance. But most countries you could buy it there at the border, but not in Argentina you couldn't. And uh, so I went in trying to buy insurance and, all the, you know, all the insurance agencies were out of business and like, it, it was nothing. I, it was nothing I could do. And I was getting ready to miss my flight, uh, out of, uh, 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 Buenos Aires. 
which was like 1,200 miles away. Is this going down or coming north yeah, again? Yeah, yeah. This was, this was going down. So, mm-hmm. so my trip, I ended up doing in two, two parts. Uh, I, I, I did over summer break from, from university, and then uh, over Christmas break, I went back. Oh, I see. So this was the end of summer break. This was the, the first long one, and I was trying to get to Buenos Aires to, to fly out. And, you know, I was running out of time, already missing a week of classes. And, uh, yeah, I got, got to the border with Bolivia and, and, and Argentina. I can't remember the name of the border town. Uh, but it was interesting because I was sitting there, you know, like trying to figure out what I was going to do. You, they had some deal where they had free trade between them if you walked it across. Oh, I see. <laughs> so there, there was a business for these guys carrying baggage across the border from uh, Bolivia to Argentina, right? And right. Like, wow, that's crazy. It's like a bunch of worker ants, you know, like, <laughs> like, like unloading a truck on one side and walking over. Yeah, and loading exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, uh, so, so I went there trying to find, uh, uh, trying to find insurance. Cause again, I was legal. I mean, my passport had the Argentinian stamp in it. But it, it was no insurance to be had, and I was running out of time, and I had 1,200 miles to cover to get to Buenos Aires from, from the border. And eventually, I just got aggravated, and I made a little video of it. And I had my had, had an old, you know, it wasn't a GoPro. It was some something drift, I think was the name of it. And, and I put, put the helmet cam on me. I'm like, you know, these guys aren't letting me in. I'm going to miss my flight. I can't afford to miss my flight hop on the bike, and just ride through the border. You know, some guy jumps out in front of me, tries to like stop me and I just zigzag around him and, and, and I'm off. And uh, I saw when I went into uh, the town there in Argentina where there was another checkpoint, like, you know, just on the outskirts of town. So mm-hmm. I went out into the desert and went around it and, oh, and I was on the road. And so for like a hundred miles, I was, I was freewheeling. And uh, came over a, a rise, uh, looked off in the distance. There's another checkpoint. Boy, they were waiting on me. <laughs> they, had uh, they, knew. <laughs> they had, oh, yeah. Oh, they knew. They had plenty of time. Well, it was like 100 miles in. Yeah. Every federally that they could wrangle was out there waiting on me. And I come over the hill and I, I see him off in the distance. I'm like, uh oh. And I turn around and go back. And, uh, and I found a bridge and I went and hid under the bridge and these, these federales come on a pickup truck and I hear them go over the bridge and then I hear them stop. Like, oh man. And, and I gassed up, go back towards checkpoint up the side of the bridge, back towards checkpoint on the other side of the bridge the federales had unloaded off the back of the pickup truck. And one particularly just overachiever, just popped off every, it was a nine mil. Uh, he popped off every round in that, that the wow. nine millimeter would hold. He, really? like, he unloaded all of it. Now he was running and I was on the other side of the bridge. His chances of hit me were ext- extremely low. Yeah. But he, the he unloaded. <laughs> he unloaded. So I'm back. And at that point, if I did, if I wasn't already motivated to get away from, I was definitely motivated to get away from. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I go back towards the checkpoint again. And and I remember seeing the opening on the side of the highway. And by the highway, it was two lane, but, you know, it was the main main route. I remember seeing an opening in the fence because it was kind of lined by a fence, but I remember seeing the opening. So 
I go and hit this opening and I'm going off into the desert. <laughs> and, uh, but there's like kind of this kind of brush, heavy brush and not quite sand dunes, but dune-ish like knobs and things. And I'm trying to get up them. And of course, you know, the adventure motorcycles, we have this problem. We overload, especially on early trips. We pack sure. way more stuff than we need. Yeah. And I'm already on a big bike. I'm a big guy. I've got too much stuff. And uh, going up this hill, uh, the uh, I'm smoking the clutch. I don't have, I've got a GS, but I don't have the adventure model. I've got a five-speed gearbox. I'm really slipping the the first gear <laughs> and and my my clutch is smoking my my bike is just literally smoking it's a big plumes of smoke coming off the back slipping this clutch this is this is the bmw with the dry clutch which is yeah, is prone yeah, yeah. to oh, burn out yeah. if you abuse it oh as and anyone I was, is i was and i'd already replaced it in costa rica uh, and uh, it, it, i was just smoking it. i mean and it, it, like if they didn't know where I was at, they definitely knew then because I had a smoke signal going up off the thing. And uh, I, I look back, and their pickup truck pulls in there. It's not the guys that shot at me, but another pickup truck. And he pulls in by himself. This guy's kind of high-ranking sort of police guy. Yeah, no uniform or anything. And he pulls in in his Ford Ranger, and I'm looking down off this knob and I make it to the top. I make it to the top knob, but that, at that point, it is no use in running anymore. I, the gig's up. So I put the kickstand down. I, I see the guy down there. I just kind of wave at him, and I take my helmet off with the helmet cam, and I look, turn around at me like I did at the border. I'm like, all right, this is the way the trip ends, you know? <laughs> and I set it up on the, the, the rearview mirror stalk, and uh, then the other pickup truck full of Federales pulls up. We're taking a quick break. I have two things to tell you about. Stay with us. We got a lot more coming up. See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. And it should be a priority for all riders because we all know how many times drivers just don't see us. Auxiliary lighting is one of the best ways to ensure that you are seen and Cyclops Adventure Sports makes motorcycle-specific lighting systems that are plug-and-play for us motorcyclists. They have also quality DOT-approved LED headlight conversion kits. These are properly designed conversion kits that are plug-and-play, not those that you see going down the road spraying light into oncoming traffic eyes and all over the road. That's the last thing you want. That's key when shopping for LED headlight replacements. And Cyclops is owned and operated by riders just like us, enthusiasts that love adventure riding. And that passion drives Cyclops to make these incredible products for us. It really, it's great that we have this. Cyclops has all kinds of accessories for your motorcycle, including Evo turn signal conversion kits, which I absolutely love. These turn your front turn signals into super bright driving lights as slash turn signals. And then in the back, they turn your turn signals into ultra bright LED brake lights slash turn signals. And these are super bright LEDs, like quality LEDs. When I tap my brake light, because I have them on my bike, I can see signs reflecting that red light, that punchy LED for as far back as I can see in my mirror. They demand attention. 
CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that are all designed to improve your control by adding leverage and connection through properly engineered designs that maintain or even improve factory ergonomics in regard to your shifter and your rear brake pedal. Now, this isn't done by accident. It's done using IMS Products' 47 years of experience, much of that on the racetrack. Bottom line is that IMS Products' foot pegs will improve your skills by giving you better tools. And don't underestimate just how important wider, properly engineered foot pegs are and what they will do for you as a rider. IMS Products foot pegs are made in the USA. They're warrantied for life. And as you can imagine, the only way you can offer a warranty like that is to offer great products to begin with. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. So at this point, like, I mean, you've screwed up big time here. Do you, are, are you thinking that you're going to somehow talk your way out of this or because you're a fool? Like, what's your thought process? Aren't you picturing oh, jail? I, I was like, I had one, I had a lot of adrenaline going, right? I mean, I was just, I was racing up this hill, like uh, 500 pound, fully loaded, more than that, really. On the run for your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah. But the guy that, that showed up, and it's good that he was there, uh, he didn't want to kill me, <laughs> you know. But the, it, it, I was like, well, let's let's see. Yeah, I, I turned that, the helmet. I had enough wherewithal to talk to the camera, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, I'm like, well, this is the way the trip ends. And uh <laughs> Yeah, about that time, then the the other pickup truck loaded with Federales uh, rolls up, and uh, the one they, it had to be the guy that shot at me. Uh, it hops off, and he starts running up the hill. I got my hands up, you know. He's got his gun drawn on me, running up the hill, at, you know, and uh, on camera, <laughs> like like I get get down, and he kicks me in the ribs a few times. Makes a big show about putting me into cuffs and walking me off the hill. Yeah, and well, they had a hell of a time getting that bike off. It was, it was, it was just like it was way up there. They they didn't ride. They couldn't ride it off. They a bunch of them had to push it off. And uh, so they put me in the the pickup truck. The initial guy that showed up there at the little bluff, the Sandy Bluff, and uh, I remember him coming over to to the pickup truck. And he had the SD card out of my helmet cap. And he looked at me and smiled. like, we got the proof right here, man. We got the proof right here. And, uh, yeah, they, they took me over to that checkpoint, which is 100 miles inside the uh, Argentinian border. But I wasn't Ill- there illegally, right? I mean, I-, I was legal. I had the Argentinian stamp in the passport. It was the bike that wasn't legal. Well, and also, I mean, you've obviously broken the law by Booting through. Yeah, I mean, sure. I don't know. Does it being sure. legal entry matter at this point? Well, it would. It would in terms of what they could charge me with. 
Uh, right. I, I wasn't there illegally, but, but yeah, yeah. They're, but they didn't know. It was like, are we going? And, and Argentina is not on the U.S.'s friends list, right? They like Argentina has a, it, they, they just, they just, uh, um, Reelected, and by re- I'm, I'm making quotation marks <laughs> here. Reelected Christina Kirchner, who is boy, she's a she's a mess as their you know president, uh, la presidenta or whatever. So she's not Argentina is not our friends list, but at the same time, like it, I was more trouble than I was worth. <laughs> sort of thing and and so i'm sitting there at this uh, uh, uh beautiful sunset too they put me in this little room at the checkpoint like you know under arrest this little detention room just a beautiful sunset and uh end up taking a photo out of the out, out of the room and just thinking like what's gonna happen you know what what's gonna happen am i going to argentinian prison like what's gonna happen yeah are you worried well, yeah, clearly I'm worried. Uh, well, you I'm, should be. I'm, I'm just worried. sort of wondering, you yeah. know, like, is he thinking but, like a normal person? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, but I did have a camera on me. I took a picture. And uh, <laughs> after a few hours, they took me out to the uh, to my bike, and they took all the baggage, which was, as I mentioned earlier, overloaded. Yeah, They threw it out on the ground, and they had a beagle there. <laughs> this big drug sniffing dog went yeah. over it, and uh, you know, it, I didn't have any drugs. I, I had I, I bought some uh, uh, some of them uh, coca leaves in Bolivia, but everybody there chewed them, so I had a big bag of these leaves, which I was chewing to help keep me up. Uh, but everybody did it, so that was no big deal. Mm-hmm. But they were they were they were they were sniffing over everything. And I remember very distinctly, there, I had a big Ziploc bag, big Ziploc bag. And they, they pull it out, and they saw the Ziploc bag, and everybody looked at each other. They're like, oh, we got him now. We got him now. Yeah. And they pull it out, and, and it was my journal and a dictionary. <laughs> 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 and then they looked at each other like, oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but like, this. <laughs> so. They didn't find anything. Like, it, it, and I'm like, well, why does this guy run from? Of course, I was running from him because they wouldn't let me in. They're being obstinate about some insurance that was unobtainable there. Right. And and are you are you able to understand them? Are you able to speak Spanish? By then, well, no, not when I left. Uh, but pequeño español, motorismo tour. <laughs> Terminant. I don't know. At the end, I could, I could, I could like butcher, butcher some some conversation in in Spanish. Uh, so uh, and and having the English speakers there was it, it was a premium in that area. And uh, you get to Buenos Aires or something, it's not an issue. You'll find people speaking English, but at this area, it was very remote. So, so they can't talk to you. They're not asking you directly. Why? What were you doing? All that sort of stuff. Very, very, very few of the the guys that showed up were high up in the government. And like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they they wanted to search, and they thought they'd find something. They didn't find anything other than the, my journal. So, uh, yeah, they ended up deciding, hey, he's got nothing. And it's like, 
could we charge him for this or that? Like maybe, but it, it, it's more trouble than it's worth, right? I think, and, and I don't know for sure. So they end up having me go back out, pack my pack my stuff up, and this is this is you know the end of summer here. It's fall here. But down there, it's still cold. It's like, it, it, you know, it's the end of winter or early spring down there, I guess. And, uh, you know, the sun had gone down, and they had me go and pack up my uh, uh, bike. And they pack it up, and they have an escort for me to go the 100 miles. They have, like, a, a three-police vehicle escort back to the border. So I pack all my stuff back up, which was no small feat. And, uh, yeah, they escort me back late at night. It is freezing cold. And, uh, yeah, they do the 100 miles back with the police escort back to the border. And uh, they have a, uh, a uh, interpreter there. Her, her name was Abigail. And uh, Abigail uh, took some interest in me, and they, they, they seized my motorcycle at the border. So they put it in uh, uh, into lockup. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, then she takes me to a hotel, and the next morning they come get me and uh, took me to this guy. There was some, you know, bureaucrat, high-ranking guy. It's like, hey, there's this thing. If you'd have paid a fifty dollar, the equivalent of fifty dollar fee, you know, I, I don't know how many Argentinian pesos that is, but he wouldn't have had to have the insurance. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> basically, I pay this fifty dollar fee. And I go to get my bike out. My bike, where it had been on the Bolivian salt flats in the water, had developed an electrical glitch in it. And it would try to start on its own. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't realize this. But it, it, it being, you know, a smart motorcyclist, when I park something, and in this case, in the seizure lot, <laughs> and they put it inside there at the uh, federal uh, police offices at the Bolivian-Argentinian border, uh, it tried to start on its own with no key, no nothing. It just started cranking, but I was in gear. So <laughs> when it did that, it pushed itself off the side stand and just <laughs> and uh, busted the uh, windscreen off of it. So the next day when I get to go reclaim my uh, uh, bike, it's got no windscreen. It's busted all the pieces. And like, yeah, it tried to start on its own. And at the time, I'm like, the heck it did. <laughs> I, I found so out that it did. Actually. You were thinking like, that they did this as a retaliation or something. I, I don't know what I thought. Uh, like the, somebody was there goofing off on it, right? Yeah. Take it for a ride. Take, let's take this BMW for a spin. But I, I don't know what they're doing. Where that was my thought. But I had no time to think about these things. I had to get to Buenos Aires. I had a flight catch. And at that point, when I finally got my bike back the next day after I got shot at, uh, I had about just under 30 hours to make it 1,200 miles. And uh, so, you know, I had to get going. <laughs> I had to get moving. And I was tired, you know. I was mm -hmm. like, and, and I had no windscreen. So, hugged Abigail goodbye. Uh, they had erased the SD card. They didn't want me to have any any kind of like uh, proof that any of this ever happened. Mm -hmm. uh, which I've tried, and maybe I still can get that 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 fixed. I, I've got that SD card somewhere, 
But uh, I take off. I stop where I got shot at and and found one of the bullet case one of the casings. The the dude shot at me, and and that's a re- reason I know it's nine millimeter. Oh, I see. Uh, so I found one of those, and uh, yeah, I, I had to stop along the way uh, to take a little nap. But but I made it. I made my flight. I got out of there by minutes, uh, and left left the bike there at, at parking. You know, long term parking at uh, in, at Buenos Aires <laughs> Airport because so- I had no time to do anything else. So yeah, parking there was expensive. So when you get on the plane and you're, you know, the plane's taking off, you have time to reflect. What did you think about what you just did? You know, I didn't know what to think about it, to be honest. I I don't even remember being on the plane. I remember everything getting up to it. And I remember making the flight by by minutes. Mm -hmm. And I knew that, you know, I was going back to, to school that semester. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I was a, a failure as a student up until the university. When I got to university, I was, I was killing and studying economics. I had like 4.0s. I got back that semester. I, I think I had a 2.3 or something. I, I like, I did not care about class. I did not care about whatever. And if I was having problems with, whatever it's like i just didn't care i did not care why like i don't i you know i don't know i don't know it was like i I, but i was i was my point that i'm getting at is i was a different person i was a different person that was a life-changing thing that i just done and and when i was on that flight i couldn't quantify it you know and and again this Maybe today, if I were to do the same thing, it would be different. But the the connectivity and social media is so refined now. You know where you're going. You know where you're doing. Yeah. Then, I, you know, I'd have to stop and get Wi-Fi and get on, you know, the internet and things like that. It, it, it was different. I mean, you're not pulling the computer out of your pocket. Now, some really fancy people would have had that. I did not have that at yeah. the time. But, uh, no, I, I, I when I was on that flight, I, I couldn't. I don't know that I was thinking. I was just tired for one, and yeah, what a, what a thing! It, well, it, 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 to the, it, to this time, to this day, it, 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 this portion of my life, easily the best thing I've ever done with my life. It, it, there's no no question about it. And, the trip uh, in general. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not not necessarily jumping on your bike and booting it through a border, going around border <laughs> guards necessarily. Because I mean, well, I can't help but think of those as one of the moments you think, "What was I thinking?" Like when well, you're dumping yeah, the clutch I there. I made the flight. I made the flight. You know, I, you of know? course, you did. But you I, could, I made the flight. You could just I, I as vo- I, you could just as well be in some Argentinian prison sure, still sure, right but now but making I friends. I, I didn't. I didn't. I yeah. didn't. And it wasn't clear. But did I get? Did I achieve what I'd hoped to achieve? Ultimately, I did. I made my flight. I, I did it. It was an assertiveness that other people wouldn't have had. Uh, generally speaking, nobody would have done that. And and they would have had to rebook a flight. You know, they'd have had to gone through a bunch of bureaucratic stuff trying to find out that, hey, I only had to pay $50 to get out of this because nobody was helping me. The only reason I found that guy that was willing to help me is because I pulled some crazy stuff. Now, in my old age, would I do that again? I, I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. But 
at the time, I felt it was my only option, and that's what I did. I think it's interesting that you say, I don't know, probably not. <laughs> You're not even convinced at this point, but okay. But but you could just as easily, you know, picked up one of those nine millimeters. You could just as easily, like we said, be in, been in a prison in Argentina because something completely yeah. different. But but what I really want to ask you is because you, you said that this sort of this trip changed you as a person. You came back, you had a different attitude for, for um, going to school. What was it about you that changed? Did you become more bold or, or did it- oh, definitely, definitely more bold. And I was already pretty bold. I mean, my, my whole life growing up, it was, it made me very bold, but it, it, for instance, like I was, I was a little apprehensive about leaving and doing the trip. Like, you know, what am I going to encounter on a trip to South America? You know, like riding a motorcycle by myself. Uh, yeah, definitely more assertive, more, more, uh, uh, more confident in myself. Like mm-hmm. I can make this happen. And if I wasn't before, after that, I was very, very confident. So is that confidence in your ingenuity or, or just in your brute force that you will just sort of force your way through? Well, I, 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 I tell people I have a, a, a bull in a China shop method of international travel. So it, brute force is kind of a way uh, of looking at it, but also ingenuity plays a part. I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy in the world, but uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly not the biggest idiot either. So, mm. uh, you know, there's something to be said for assertiveness, right? You know, and authorities can see it. They know that. They see it. I'm like, is this guy worth our time? Make it in their best interest to get rid of you. There's something to be said for that. And it's proven itself time and time again. Now, you might get locked up in the process. You might get beaten up in the process, but you might get shot at at the process. But ultimately, it's like, is he worth all this? (laughs) (laughs) And you're willing to accept those side things. I'll call them side things. Man. Man, dealing with bureaucracy is a beating in itself. It is. (laughs) No doubt. Hey, you you wrote, and I think it's on, on your blog, no matter how little or big you dream, how much you plan, or how hard you work. Forces both seen and unseen conspire against even the noblest endeavors, best laid plans, and most diligent laborers. Flexibility and ingenuity help overcome such opposition, but nothing <laughs> works like willpower and perseverance. And, and yeah. in that, in that, Israel, you don't say anything about force. <laughs> <laughs> well, perseverance. <laughs> perseverance. Perseverance is staying at it. I mean, you know, beating it. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know about I don't know about force. Hey, I, I, I want to talk about your dog. You've, you've got a new puppy there at your feet. You've 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 had two other dogs that you've ridden with. Like what made you decide to get a dog and stick it in a, a motorcycle pannier? Well, the, the the thing with my first dog, uh, Daisy, you know, I was in my early twenties, like twenty two years old or something. I've always had a problem like maintaining, uh, you know, like significant others or relationships and things like that. Uh, so I got, I had Daisy and man, she was just the best dog ever and uh, went everywhere with me. But when I started doing motorcycle adventuring, when I was riding, you know, though I was riding all the time, you're talking smaller trips or maybe I'd motorcycle to the coast or something like that. But Mm -hmm. when I went to, did my first transcontinental trip, you know, to Romania or whatever, she stayed behind. And when I rode down to South America, she stayed behind. And 
Then when I tried to do a failed trip around the world because I couldn't get a Russian visa and the Middle East was a no-go zone for Americans, she stayed behind. And I felt bad about it. Each time I'd come back, she'd be less and less enthusiastic when I'd show back up. She's like, don't let and, – and I thought, you know, listen, I'm never leaving you behind again. I'm sorry, Daisy. You deserve better than this. And I'm never leaving you behind. So, so I took her with me, you know, I was, I was delivering bikes around Europe and did, did some other trips, but I was, uh, I had a motorcycle shipping business when I finished school, delivering all over uh, North America or well, United States. I went into Canada a little bit. Um, and then, uh, I'm like, well, let's, let's see how this works in Europe. And it didn't work as well, but I'd make enough money to buy fuel. And uh, in my Sprinter van over there, I'd uh, 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 keep my my bike, my Yamaha Tenere, the Z Tenere, fuel injected one. Uh, so I had one of those over there, and I kept it with me, and I'd ship enough bikes where I'd, I'd stay full, but uh, end up doing over a hundred thousand miles uh, in 2014, 2015. I was there for about eighteen months, and did over a hundred thousand miles around Europe shipping bikes. But I kept, I kept my bike on board and I w- was in Rome. I was there, uh, went to Ducati Rome to pick up two Benelli's to go to France. And I, I had Daisy with me, of course. Uh, Daisy ended up doing overland a million miles with me. And most wow. of that was in, in Sprinter vans around North America. But yeah. she did 100,000 miles in van in, in Europe. And uh, she did, ultimately ended up doing some. Uh, a mileage on a bike, which is the story I'm telling. Well, but I was there in Rome, and I'd never been to Rome before. I wanted to see Rome, but parking for a Sprinter van in Rome is near impossible. And if you can find a parking spot, it's like, is it safe? You got a, you know, a, a load of motorcycles in the back of your your van, you know, like, eh, other people's bikes. But I was there at Ducati Rome, and everybody was kind of taking interest in Daisy, and you know, like, well, so I. But uh, the, these Benelli's I was picking up were going a long way. They're going back to France, and uh, I pulled my bike out to be at the back because those guys were going to sit there for a long time. So I had my bike pulled out, and I remember pushing this Benelli up, or one of the two Benelli's I was pushing up, and I looked over in the distance. And, and Daisy's sitting in the shade underneath the pannier on my uh, uh, on my Tenere, my Yamaha. I'm like, she'll fit in there. <laughs> and, and that was the, the light bulb moment. And uh, so I go back over and I pull the lid off, pull the junk out of the, the, the pannier, and I you know, tap on the seat. And, and Daisy pops up there. And at this point, she's pretty old. She's like, She's like maybe 11, 12 years old at this oh, point. Wow. Mm. So she could pop up. She was in good shape. She pops up there. I'm like, I'm, she knew. She knew she was a smart dog. I'm like, hey, you about this pioneer here? And she's looking down. She's giving me the, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because she kind of hated my, she had a love hate relationship with the bikes. I did buy an R75 with the sidecar for her to ride around with me. But generally speaking, I'd get on the bike and she'd turn away and huff and like, I'm clearly not going anywhere. But she knew. She was like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's try this. So they're in the parking lot, Ducati Rome. I, I, I tossed 
Daisy in the pannier and ride around the parking lot. And she's digging it, man. She's like, this is great. This is great. Wow. And uh, yeah, the the first the, the first dog in the pannier trip was uh, uh, around Rome, and uh, after that, she and I did did quite a few good sized trips on the bike. Went down to uh, 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 Morocco and rode and uh, Turkey. Did a big trip from Romania to Turkey uh, in a, in a huge snowstorm, which was a which was a good tale, and. Uh, yeah, she she was the she was the first Moto Mud International. Wow, that's that's pretty incredible. So so Daisy rode around for well, it was years, I guess, on the, in your bike. Well, till she passed away in 2017, uh, uh, which was kind of unexpected. She was 15 years old when that happened. Then you got another dog, Dan. Yes, yeah. Dan, uh, and that was. Because I'd had Daisy for 15 years, and it wasn't quite fair. I went to the animal shelter, and uh, Dandy, uh, he was uh, he was there, and the uh, animal shelter that Daisy had come from uh, had contacted me. The lady that runs the animal shelter there had contacted me and said, hey, we've got this border collie here. Maybe you'd be interested in him. And I went there, and poor little guy, he was skittish and almost fully grown, but skittish and, but he was smart and you could tell he was smart. And I was like, I could talk with him and immediately he kind of knew what I was saying. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know if your skittishness is going to work for me, but you're smart. I'll give you a shot. And, uh, you know, after I let him kind of get comfortable with me for a few days, I took him out to kind of abandoned road on my DR 650 or, and had a guy meet me with the DR650 at this abandoned road, and I, I threw him in the pannier and uh, took him for took him for a ride, and he was just just a real savant, like it, it just a natural motorcycle dog. He just hunkers down in the pannier and loves it. Oh, he was great. He was great. Just perfect uh, uh, riding stance, everything. He was like immediately just great at it. I was pushing the boundaries and. I did a wheelie and he didn't like that too much, <laughs> but Dan, he, he left me too much, too young. Uh, and, and he, he, he ended up being the best motorcycle dog, like skill wise in the history of the world. I mean, it, like off-road, hard off-road, really flying on-road. I mean, we would, we'd go fast. I mean, like not racetrack speed fast, but just a notch under that. And he'd hang in there. Um, but uh, I went to race on the Isle of Man the Southern 100, an event this year, and Dan went with me. And we, we drove from Romania to, to uh, uh, the Isle of Man. Or, you know, we had to take a ferries wrong way, obviously. But And apparently got bit by a tick at some point. I don't know if it was in the UK or on the Isle of Man, uh-huh. though he was on, you know, the, the fancy fleeing tick stuff. And I never saw a tick on him, but he he had a terrible infection, and I treated it when we got back to Romania. That's when the symptoms showed, and he got better, and then we came to the States, and he relapsed, and then a lot more vet visits, and he got better, and then we I went back to Europe and did another road race in, in Germany, 
and he was in great shape. And the day after the race in Froberg, Germany, he, he bloated up again and there was another relapse and, uh, he never got over that one. Uh, we, you know, our, when he was starting to relapse there, I was supposed to go to do this, uh, horizons unlimited meeting and tell some, some stories make a presentation there in, in Austria, the first horizons unlimited Austria. And I was thinking about just canceling that because Dan was getting sick again, but I thought, you know what? No, let's go down and do that. And I'm, re- I'm really happy I did because Dan was still enjoying it, even though he was bloated up and, you know, his, his liver was failing. He, uh, yeah, it was, it was good that I did that. And he got to be a, a bit of a superstar that he was, he was, he was a superstar, a really smart dog, the best riding dog in the history of the world. And, uh, he got to really be the center of attention and, and, and get some, get some applause and, and shouts and people loved him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, after that, you know, we, we drove back up to the UK and, uh, got a flight home and, you know, two days after we made it back here to Tennessee, he passed away in my arms. Um, yeah. So that was that was like six weeks ago, a little over it. And, and now this this new puppy is going to be your new companion for riding the motorcycle. Maybe we'll see. I, you know, Dan was so good at it. I don't anticipate that that Duke is going to have this type of skill for it. And he may be too big. His mother was border collie, but his dad was black lab. Or is a black lab? Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know. He may be too big for the pan year. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. I, I don't know. It, I'm not going to make him do it if he can't do it. That kind of thing. Yeah. What do you do if he? What if you do he can't though? How does that affect your rides? I don't know. You know, and I and I hate to be heartless, but I'm not going to stop adventuring because he, you know, he's unwilling to go. I think he'll go. I, I, I do. I may have to modify and rather than uh, uh, do the pannier, which is the best, you know, a little plug for the pannier thing in terms of the dog will fit in a pannier in terms of weight distribution and things like that. That's the best because mm-hmm. it keeps the weight low. You can really go hard on road, off road harder than you can with the dog sitting on a pillion. But if I have to, to, to change it to the pillion, I mean, I've, I've done that before it's not as desirable in terms of just like flexibility, but that's, that's what I'll do, but it's too early to say, I mean, this is a puppy. He, he's like, he, he was only born just before Dan died kind of thing, yeah. you know? So he, he's a couple of months old. So, uh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I'm not sure, but he's got potential. He's a smart dog. I can tell. Israel, thanks so much for coming on. Best of luck with the new dog and uh, really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Check out Moto Mud International. Let's see what this new pup does. I was speaking with Israel Gillette from his home in Jonesboro, Tennessee. You can find out more about Israel at his website, daisygillette.blogspot.com 
or his YouTube channel is Moto Mutt International. We've got some great photos and those links in the show notes on our website for this episode, AdventureRiderRadio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it hey the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support we'd really appreciate it if you check out the support options anything uh, ten dollars more get you a sticker for your pannier your toolbox really nice stickers i know i'm biased but just trust me on this they're really nice stickers they're made with 3m vinyl they'll stay they'll hold their color and everything anyway enough but anything, so you'll get the sticker, anything $10 or more, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. And we would really appreciate it if you consider our patron option, just a small amount each month that you pledge. You have the option to listen to the show ad free and it, it's there for us each month. It's really important for us on this side of it. So if you enjoy the show, you get something out of it each week and Adventure Rider Radio Raw, the other show that we do that comes out once a month. If you're getting something from these shows, think about giving something back. We, we really appreciate it. And I just mentioned Adventure Rider Radio Raw. There is a new episode of Raw out just this week. It comes out once a month, as I said, on the 21st of every month. So on the 21st, you can always find it where you find your podcast. But if you go look now, there is a new episode out now. Good fun on that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you next week. I'm Heather Ellis, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 